and Kelly right over there. Um, for our kids' church, if you're here and you're a kid and you're older than age six, we have some resources right over at the welcome table for you. We've got colored pencils and some sermon note sheets, and you can draw pictures, and you can try to make tick marks as to how many times I say the word God. Uh, good luck with that, and uh, let me know about it, and there will be some sort of prize in it. Um, but also, I always challenge the kids to do this. Uh, I know you're not going to understand everything that I say when I come up here, and so Write down questions that you have about the sermon. What did you not understand? When I, did I say a big word? Uh, is there just something that really interests you? And, and then ask mom and dad or come up and ask me and just let's talk about it together. I, I want you to understand uh, that God is for you, that Christ has died as a sacrifice for your sin and that there is hope of life in him. And so let's uh, take a minute right now and let's pray for our kids. Those that are here, those that are already upstairs, and those that are going upstairs, okay? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning that we can gather together, and I pray that in this time we would see Christ, and that while we are here, and when we go out of here, our lives would show Christ. That's ultimately what it's about, is that Christ has done this amazing work for us, and in us, so that we might display his glory, that we might exalt him in all things. And so, Lord, for our kids, Lord, I pray that you would work on their hearts and help them to see Jesus, see their need of him, see the hope that is found in him. For us who are down here, same thing applies. Lord, help us to see Christ, to see our need of him, and to love him with all our hearts and all our souls, all our minds and all our strength. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're looking at one verse again this morning, verse 28. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles provided in the chairs, and it's page 978 there. Uh, we look at the Bible a lot. I, I point and point and point at it, so you'll be helped to have it in front of you. Um, you know, it's been a few weeks since I've been up here. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Ephesians together. So what I want to do is I want to take a minute to just bring us up to speed with where we've been before we move forward and look at our verse for this morning. So thinking about Ephesians as a book, as a whole, if I had to describe what Ephesians was about in one sentence, I would say this, Ephesians is about God's grace to save us and to unite us together in Christ. All right, that's the main theme. God's grace to save us and to unite us together in Christ. But as we unpack that a little bit further, going chapter by chapter, we saw in chapter 1 that God has done a great work for us and is, has done and is doing a great work in us. We've seen lots of amazing things. God chooses us. God adopts us. God redeems us. God forgives us. God makes known the mystery of his will to us. God showers his grace upon us. God seals us with the promised Holy Spirit. There's life. There's joy. There's hope. There's living in him like never before. God has raised Christ and exalted him above every name that is named for every single age. And because of that... We have this unbelievable hope. We have this glorious inheritance awaiting us. And we have available to us the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. That's just chapter 1. Chapter 2. 
we saw that God has done this amazing work in spite of us, that we were dead in our sin, right? You, dead, the dead don't bring themselves to life, right? We were dead. We were enslaved by our desires, by our passions, by just the loves for the world, by the temptations of Satan. And as a result of that, we couldn't not sin. That's who we were. We had this bent towards going away from God and focusing on ourselves of living as if this is my world and I'm God. And as a result of that, we were condemned under God's just and holy wrath for our sin. But because God is loving and because God is merciful, God has done for us what we could never do. God has made us alive together with Christ. And God not only has reconciled us to himself, but he has also reconciled us to each other. He has broken down the dividing walls of hostility, and he has made us one in Christ. In chapter 3, we learn a little bit more about why God did that. God united us together as a church, as this new humanity in Christ, in order for us to be the display of his wisdom and his grace and his glory and his power, that we serve as trophies to, uh, of God to the watching world. And also, not only that, but God united us together as a church to display this so that we might come to understand just the immeasurable riches of God's love for us in Christ, a love that surpasses all knowledge so that we might be filled in him, so that we might come to maturity in Christ. And then in chapter four, he begins to tell us how that's done, okay? We're looking then at the ethical implications of that. First of all, he says, listen, you are now new creations in Christ. You're brand new, right? You have a new life. You have this new calling. Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of that calling. Be who you now are in Jesus. And how do we do that? Well, first of all, we hold to the truth that God has given us. That we, we are founded upon the truth, the one faith of the gospel. We are united, we're brought together in the church and we are to, as we submit to our lives and, and we live together in the church, submitting to the leaders that God has appointed, using our gifts that God has given us for his purposes to build each other up, then we fulfill that. We live out of that new identity. The church is central in our, what it means for us to live then as Christians. And now... We're getting in even more practically as to what it means to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. And so I want us to pick up in chapter 4, verse 17, and look at verses 17 through 28 to just kind of bring us up to where we now are, okay? It says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, that's unbelievers, the unbelieving world, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way that you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard of him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now focus in right here. This is really foundational if we are going to rightly understand and apply verse 28. He says, we were taught in Christ, verse 22, to put off the old self 
which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's saying because you are a new creation, because God has done this work in you, put off that former manner of life and put on Christ. Okay? And then he gives us some practical examples. He gets really right down to what does this look like on a daily level, right? And so he starts out by saying, hey, don't lie, speak the truth. So having put away falsehood, let us, each one of us speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Then he talks about anger, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. And now here we finally come to verse 28. And we're talking about what we do with our lives. It's more than just some simple commands, but how do we live practically? How do we exert ourselves? He says, do not steal. Let let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who has need. Since we have been taught in Christ that we are now new creations, we have this new identity in Christ, we can now, though we couldn't ever before, we can now put off that old self which belongs to that former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires, and we can now be renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And because this is the case, we are to no longer steal, Rather, we are to labor so that we can have something to share with anyone who has need. Now, here's why I've said all of that. Here's why I felt like it was necessary to just bring us up to speed and to remember what we have talked about beforehand. Okay, And I really zoomed in on verses 20 through 24. Because in light of the gospel... We cannot reduce verse 28 down to don't steal, rather work, and occasionally give to people who really need it. All right? if, if I only talked about that, I would miss the significance of this passage entirely. And I think that that's what we so often do when we come to this text. Ah, don't steal, work, give sometimes. Okay. But that interpretation misses the gospel. You see, it's not enough for us to conclude, well, hey, not a robber, not a purse snatcher, haven't committed burglary, right? haven't committed grand theft auto, haven't committed fraud, never held a gun to anyone's head and demanded what belongs to them. I have not stolen, therefore I'm good, right? Check that one right off the list. Got that half, moving on to what comes next. Nor is it enough For us to look at this passage and say, okay, I don't steal and I have a job. Look at me. I labor. Now, sure, I I, I may labor enough of my part-time job to just barely pay the utilities and keep me in Totino's Pizza so that I can spend the rest of my day devoted to movies and video games and surfing the internet, you know, whatever. But, hey, I don't steal and I have a job. But it's not even enough to say this. I labor diligently to provide for my family. I don't steal. I labor hard. I give 
when needs arise. Not even that is getting this passage right. It's more than that. And so we have to look carefully at it. How do we think about this passage in light of the gospel? Because here's the deal. That interpretation, don't steal, rather work and contribute to the needs of others, that's simply legalistic capitalism. That's all that it is, right? Any red-blooded, quasi-moral, yet absolutely irreligious American could ascribe to the very same thing. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter what they believe. They could be atheists. They could be agnostic. They could be Jewish. They could be Muslim. They could be some sort of like new age spiritualist. Doesn't really matter. They could all ascribe to it. It doesn't make it Christian just because it's in, in, in some sort of uh, important writing. All right? So we've got to examine it further. What makes this passage Christian? How do we read it in light of Christ? How does the gospel change the way we think about stealing and the way we think about labor and the way we think about sharing? How does our new identity in Christ affect the way I spend my time and my energy and my efforts out in the world? Those are the questions we have to answer if we are going to understand and rightly apply chapter 4 verse 28. We have to get the context of everything that has gone before it and just how revolutionary that is in our, way, in our thinking, in our minds, in our hearts. Otherwise, we will read this verse as moral consumers or as legalistic entrepreneurs. But the gospel does so much more than that. See, the point that Paul is trying to make here is that Christ gave himself to transform takers into givers. Christ gave himself to transform takers into givers. Now, in order for me to lay out this main idea, I want to look at three points. First, there's the command to no longer steal, the prohibition, the, what we are to put off. Then second, we are called to do honest labor, what we are to put on. And then third is the purpose of our work, which is to give. And so you kind of see that how verses 20 through 24 really apply. You've got the whole structure of put off, put on, and why we are to do that. All right, so let's look at the command, the negative command, the put off. Let the thief no longer steal. Now again, it's really easy for us to come to this text and say, well, I'm not a thief, therefore this does not belong to me. It doesn't apply, it doesn't matter. But I think we have to slow down, we have to stop, and we have to think about what actually is stealing. If you had to define stealing, how would you define it? What's taking what doesn't belong to you, right? I see that thing, I want it, it's not mine, it belongs to another, so I take it. That's stealing. Taking something that does not belong to another. Or, or there's an item that has been set aside for a specific purpose by its owner right? This is intended for this. Like a, a owner owns a shovel and it's intended to dig holes, right? You don't, if I were to take that shovel without asking and I was to use the shovel to, I don't know, hit somebody upside the head, it would be stealing, right? So it's using something 
for a purpose, for my own selfish purposes, apart from its intended purpose, without permission. Right? That's also stealing. Going against the very nature of its purpose. Now already, I think that we've broadened and uh, the application of what stealing is, and it's kind of hopefully opening our eyes a little bit more. To what I can't define stealing simply as carjacking or robbery or, or even taking a physical possession that belongs to another. It's more than that. It's taking what doesn't belong to you and using it for your own ends. Now, there are thousands of examples that we could mention As employers, we can steal by not giving our employees a fair wage. Or if we use company materials for our own selfish purposes, right? Take the company car to go on vacation or, you know, go ahead and just take the ream of paper and and use it over at home because I ran out, right? Those are examples of stealing. As employees... We steal when we're poor workers. When we do a shoddy job, we just do what bare minimum, what needs to be done. And as a result, our coworkers have to come back and they have to carry our weight. They have to cover up for us. They have to undo everything that we did and redo it the right way. We steal when we perform personal activities while on the clock. You do realize that your employer is paying you to work, not to text or to surf the web or to fill out your Amazon wish list. We can steal time. We can steal energy. We can steal words and thoughts and ideas through plagiarism, students. Footnote. We're tempted to steal when we don't report our earnings on our taxes or when we try to underpay for something, right? It's worth this much. I'm only willing to pay this much, right? And I'm asking you to cover the dis- difference, even though I know that it's worth more than what I'm willing to pay. You know, Christians can be some of the worst at this. They can. And we, we kind of play it off like we're being frugal, or we're being wise, or we're being just smart shoppers, But we kind of put ourselves into these positions where I know that person and I know they'll cut me a deal. It's going to be a steal, right? Because, and so I know that if I ask them, well, you know, I'm not willing to go up here. I'm willing to go down here. They have to come down. And if we're taking something when we know that it's worth more than that, this is a form of theft. We steal when we take or we ask for something that we don't need or we abuse the generosity and compassion of others. And again, that doesn't have to be money. That could be time or energy. We steal from the church when we refuse to use the gifts that God has given us for their intended purpose to build up the body of Christ. We steal from God when we use the gifts that God has given us, and when I say gifts, don't think of just like spiritual gifts. I'm thinking like everything you have, right? Your talents, your skills, your resources, even your ability to work, to take what isn't ours and to use it for our own selfish ends. For there are thousands and thousands of examples we can make 
But I hope that you see from all of this that, that really deep down, when we look honestly at our lives and the things that we do, right, we're all thieves. We all steal. We all attempt to take what isn't ours. Now, some of these things might seem really, really petty to you. What, you know, God cares that I took an extra five minutes on my break? Really? So why is stealing wrong? Is it, is it simply because God said thou shalt not steal? Or is there something more to it? I mean, what does he even care? What difference does it make? And it has to be more than the fact that stealing is not a universally preferable behavior. Because this is how we think in terms of morality, right? We think in terms of harm. That's what our culture teaches us to think of. And so when we think about stealing, it's wrong for me to take that thing that you have in your possession if it's really, really important. Like if I take your kid, boy, that's harm. And you don't want that, right? And, and, and I certainly don't want it for you to go and take one of my kids. And so that's harmful. Therefore, it's bad. But time, energy, reams of paper from work, who cares? Well, of course, you're going to come to that conclusion if all you're doing is trying to define right and wrong from a sense of universally preferable behavior, right? But right and wrong is something so much more absolute and so much more timeless than what we would vote on in democratic process or what we would consider to be harmful or helpful. We have to think about it more deeply than that. And so why is taking what doesn't belong to you wrong? Well, for that, we have to start with God. We have to think about his nature and his character. Scripture tells us that the one true and living, eternal God created all that there is. Everything that exists belongs to God. He made it. He sustains it. You have everything that you have because God has given it to you. Your life, your breath, your being, your ability to Take notes right now, all a gift from the Lord. Right? Everything comes from him. Psalm 24 verse 1 tells us that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, everything. Right? And he gets really specific. The world and those who dwell therein. So in case you're thinking, well, God owns everything that is non-sentient, but everything else that kind of has the ability to think and rationalize and make decisions doesn't include them, well, he just dispels that. Those who dwell therein. Everyone, everything is his. It all belongs to God, even your life. God gave it, and if God gave it all, then he owns it all. It all belongs to him. And if he owns it all, then God never takes what doesn't belong to him. If he made it, if he sustains it, if it exists because of God, then God never ever takes what doesn't belong to him. It's impossible for God to steal. It's his, he owns it, everything belongs to him. And yet, and yet we see that God gives and he gives generously, and God gives freely. So not only is it impossible for God to steal, but God, on the other side, is a giver. Everything exists because of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. It all belongs to him, and he gives it. Therefore, stealing is a personal affront to the nature and character of God. Stealing is rebellion against who God is and all that he has done. 
That's reason number one that stealing is wrong. Second reason why taking what doesn't belong to you is wrong is that stealing is consistent with our life apart from Christ. Okay, who are we by nature? We're sinners. And why are we sinners? Because sin at its core is putting myself before God and everything else. In our sin, what we do is basically we live as if this is my world and I'm God. I matter more than you. I matter more than God. That's what we do in our sin, and we live out of that. Right? If you think back to every time you have gone against, you know, you've broken a law, every time you have uh, hurt someone dear to you or whatever, when you, if you traced it back to what was I wanting, it all boils down to the fact that I was putting myself first putting myself before God, putting myself before them. That tendency, that sin, it belongs to our former manner of life that we just read about that is corrupt through deceitful desires. Sin, or stealing in this case, is futile, dishonest labor. You have to work in order to steal, right? It's just futile and dishonest. Instead of doing honest work with our own hands, what we're doing is dishonest work of darkness that comes at the expense of the hands of another. When we steal, we take those who are not needy and we make them needy. They've worked hard to provide with their own hands for this thing that they have. When we take it away, we make them needy. And so why are we tempted to steal? This is really what it comes down to. Why? Why? Is there that impulse in us to take what doesn't belong to us? Well, we're tempted to take what doesn't belong to us because, one, we're lazy. I want that thing, but I don't want to work for it, and so I take it. It's easy money. We steal because we're selfish. I don't care about what my responsibilities are. I don't care that this belongs to someone else. I want it, so I'm going to take it. We steal because we covet. We long for something that we don't have or that we can't afford. Or we long to do something other than what we're supposed to do, and so we take. We steal because we're greedy. I want more and more and more and more of that thing. And I'm not content with what I have. What I have cannot satisfy me. I'm not grateful for what the Lord has already provided for me. And I deceive myself into thinking that my happiness is bound up with my possession of that thing. And so I take it. We steal sometimes just to see if we can get away with it. I don't know if you've ever read Augustine's Confessions, but he tells a story in that of when he was a boy. A boy who hated pears... But one day, he and his friends were playing around, and they decided they were going to steal pears. Now, I mean, Augustine hated pears, but he just wanted to see, can I steal the pears? Can I get away with it? And he stole the pears, and he didn't eat them. He he didn't give them to somebody. He threw them away. He just stole simply to see if he could get away with it. Petty theft. We take what doesn't belong to us because we think we're entitled to something that we don't have. There's been some neglect or injustice that's been done to me. My rights have been overlooked. I'm owed that thing and no one else is giving it to me. So I will take it with my own hands. 
No, you don't understand. I work hard all day long and no one notices, no one sees. And so I'm going to take, I'm just going to take a longer break than what is what I'm allowed because I know that, that I deserve it and I'm going to make sure that I get what I deserve. But we steal ultimately because we do not trust God. It's bound up in unbelief. I'm afraid that God will not provide for me. I'm afraid that what I do will go unnoticed. I'm afraid that God will not satisfy me. That God will not give me rest. That God will not give me justice. I'm afraid that God will not be here for me. That he'll leave me. That he'll forsake me. And so I must do what is necessary to provide for myself. So I must take. All of these reasons that I have mentioned are descriptions of our sinful hearts. Sinful hearts that are bent away from God and toward ourselves. It's living out of that former manner of life that has been corrupted by deceitful, by enslaving, by condemning, by death-producing desires. It is living for myself with complete and utter disregard for God and others. And the wages of our stealing in any form, whether you steal a kid or you steal time, is death. It's an eternity under the wrath of of God who gave all. Stealing runs counter to the nature and character of God. It's consistent with our selfish, death-producing desires apart from Christ. But third, stealing runs contrary to the gospel. Now those first two reasons, that applies to any and everybody. If you're here as a Christian, then this really doubly applies to you. I mean, it applies to everyone, but it really, really applies to you. When we deceive, uh, or I'm sorry, when we receive Christ's sacrifice for our sin, the power and penalty of that old self, that inner thief that was in all of us, has been defeated. That old man has died. Christ rose from the grave so that we might have new life and we might walk in obedience to God. To be able now, though we could never before, to be able now to reflect God's nature and character through our lives, through our obedience to him. God gives us grace and forgiveness so that we might no longer reflect the sinful, godless world and all of their desires, but might look differently. We are new creations so that we turn away from our desire to steal and instead follow Christ in faith. What happens? happens in salvation is that the taker is transformed into a giver, that the thieving consumer becomes a generous benefactor who gives grace and forgiveness and life and seeks to provide for the needs of others because we have received this overabundance of God's grace from God to meet our every need. That's what the gospel does. And so to take What doesn't belong to us is to rob the gospel of its life-transforming message. 
But praise God that there is hope for the thief in all of us. For the pickpocket, for the robber, for the tax evader, and for the idle worker. That the God of all grace and mercy has sent his one and only son to live a perfect life. A life of complete and total obedience to all of God's commands, all of God's laws. He lived perfectly reflecting the nature and character of God. And he died on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. He rose from the grave so that we might have new life in him. And listen, if he could turn to the thief hanging next to him on the cross and say to that man that today you will be with me in paradise, then you must understand that his Power has the ability, can work to transform our hearts, to change us from longing and living and wanting and breathing and and just living out of the world and being takers, consumers who put ourselves before all things. Because he's given us life and grace that we might now live for him. We might reflect his nature. We might become givers. Christ gave himself to transform us, to be like him. He has the power to recreate you in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, the thief can steal no more. We can be changed. And so the response is to turn away from ourselves those futile attempts to take for yourself and to turn to Christ who has the power to cleanse all of your sin and enable you to steal no more. Now that's the prohibition. That's the put off. Let the thief no longer steal. Now let's look at what the gospel transforms us into, what we are to put on. Second, the text says, rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. The power of Christ transforms barren, idle, selfish, and destructive thieves into fruitful, productive, hardworking laborers. And we know this is the case just because of context. Remember who Paul is writing to here. He's not writing to a bunch of unbelievers and saying, listen, if you just get your act together, if the thief would just stop stealing, then you can be with me. No, he's writing to Christians. Remember the beginning of Ephesians says who who the audience is. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's writing to believers, to those whose lives have been changed by the gospel. And he tells them, let the thieves among you no longer steal. Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. You were once dead in your theft. You were enslaved by the desire to take what is not yours. And as a result, you were condemned by your stealing. But God has now made you alive. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You are no longer a thief. And the good work which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in is to labor. Now that word labor means to work hard, to struggle to toil. This is not doing the bare minimum or just putting in your time or doing just enough to get by and no more. Paul is telling us to exert ourselves, to sweat, to work hard, to grow weary by our work. 
It's a good thing to toil. Don't sit back in selfish idleness and seek to take what doesn't belong to you. He says, rather, work hard. Be productive. Do what is necessary for you to reflect the nature and character of God who provides for his people. And so, if you find yourself wasting time or you find yourself unable to provide, maybe you should consider getting a second job if that's what it means to provide for your family. Maybe if you find yourself frittering away your days in idleness, then find ways to make a contribution with your time. Work more hours, serve, volunteer, but make your life count for something. Don't waste it on yourself. Be productive as it reflects the nature of God. Hard work is a good thing. We were created by God to be productive. When God created man and placed him in the garden, he gave him a job. To tend to the garden. And even in the command that God gave to be fruitful and multiply, what God didn't mean was, hey, Adam, what I want you to do here is just relax. Sit back, eat some fruit, pet some animals, delight in your naked wife. No, they were to work, to tend the garden. They were to expand the garden. Be fruitful and multiply also means to be productive. You have to understand that work was not the result of man's fall into sin. It's not like work didn't exist prior to Genesis 3. No, it's at Genesis 3 that work became a toil and a frustration. It became futile and boring. It became one of those things that we tried to find our identity in and our hope in, and it never was able to satisfy because it was never intended to. But that doesn't mean that we're not to work or that we look at work as a drudgery. No, we are to be productive. Work is not a negative thing. We are to reflect the nature and character of God who works, who creates, who is productive. And so we don't do that when we just tolerate work in order to gain that thing that I really want. We don't reflect the nature and character of God when we do the bare minimum just to get by. No, as Christians, we seek to live in light of that divine mandate to be fruitful and multiply. We long to reflect the nature and character of God and the service and sacrifice of Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's through the gospel that we learn to see work as a good thing. And as a result of God's transforming grace in our lives, former thieves are changed into those who long to be productive for the glory of God and the good of others to the satisfaction of their souls. Now he does provide a condition of our labor in this passage. He says, let him labor, but doing honest work with his own hands. All right? This is the, to be the manner of our productivity. Our work must be good and honest work, not dishonest or evil work done at the expense of the productivity of another. You have to understand that God is not indifferent about what you do for a living. If there is anything that is dishonest or there's something evil about what you're asked to do or what is done in your workplace, then you are to do something about it. If you're asked to lie or to cheat, 
you have a responsibility to do honest work with your own hands. And so maybe that means at that point, you, you need to go tell somebody. You need to talk to your supervisor. You need to report it if necessary. And if this evil continues, this immorality continues in your workplace, then maybe you need to find a different job. But you are to do honest work with your own hands. You must remember that you belong to God. He made you. He sustains you. He gives you all that you need. So God is your first boss. You are accountable to him. And your soul and a clear conscience is worth more than that paycheck. Not all work is acceptable for a Christian. So we must test our vocation and do honest work, good work with our own hands. In all this, we see that we're called to labor, right? We labor because we were created to be productive. We labor because we were meant to reflect the nature and character of God and the gospel. And so let me ask you this. Is is this at all the way that you view your labor? Is this how you view your work? Do you long to be productive? Do you work hard? Or do you only see it as a frustrating toil to be tolerated only to truly get you what you really want? Are you laboring hard in light of Ephesians 5, or I'm sorry, Ephesians 6, 5 through 8, where it says, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by way of eye service or as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free. Are you trying to find your identity in your work? Do you believe that work is only significant when it utilizes my full capacity or when it challenges me in the ways that I want to be challenged? I'll work hard when I can get something or get to do something that I love or when it gets me what I really think that I deserve. Then I'll work hard, but not before. Are you doing good, honest, hard work? the work that God has prepared you beforehand that you should walk in? Are you laboring for the glory of God and for the good of others? Do you find joy in the Lord while laboring? Or are you angry at God because this labor that you're forced to do is something that you don't like? Friends, it doesn't matter what your job is. As long as it's honest work, it's, a, it's good work. It's something to take delight in. It doesn't matter whether it utilizes your creativity or whether it like, just is something that you love. I love the Lord. I love that the Lord called me to plant this church. I love that I get to labor for the Lord. Do you think that this is not frustrating and hard and toilsome and competes in my soul for lordship of my heart and something that I try to find identity in, but it doesn't satisfy, that it's weary and heavy, right? It it is. I mean, that's just the result of the fall. 
but it's good. I don't work in order to find my contentment in my work. I work for the Lord because I have my contentment in the Lord. Satisfaction in your labor comes when you are satisfied in God. When you are satisfied by Christ's work for you, you will find satisfaction in working for him. And it's only then that you will truly be productive. Only then will, will, labor, will, will we labor and do honest work with our own hands in a way that brings glory to God and good to others and satisfaction to our souls. But why does Paul say, let the thief no longer steal, rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands? The purpose of our labor is so that we might have something to give to anyone in need. Not only do we work, but third, we work so that we might give. Now, if we were to simply stop at points one and two, it would be too soon. At that point, the gospel hasn't hasn't really come to bear and hasn't transformed us, at least fully. It may have transformed us from immoral takers to moral takers. It might have transformed us from illegal consumers to legal consumers, from socially unacceptable, greedy thieves to now socially acceptable, greedy workers. And so often, that's as far as we go when we think about Christian vocation. But it's not far enough. By the grace of God, I will work as hard, uh, I will work hard as for the Lord, but if, if we, but we fail to see how working hard by the grace of God as for the Lord leads us to be productive, not just for ourselves, but so that we might give to others. It's not enough that I have gone from being a socially deviant thief to being a selfish, greedy, world-loving, material-hoarding, covetous worker. That's not enough. That's just an external change, but it's not necessarily a heart change. That's only legalistic capitalism. And the gospel of Jesus Christ does more than change us from the outwardly filthy to whitewashed tombs. The goal of the gospel is not to get us to quit stealing. That's only a byproduct of it. The result of the gospel is a heart that reflects the heart of Christ. So it's not enough that we work hard so that we might spend our time, our energy, and our earnings on ourselves. A life that is changed from the inside out seeks to be productive in a way that reflects the work of Christ. And Christ labored to sacrifice for us. And the result of that is that I now labor to sacrifice for others. Christ's work so changes us that we long to live and to work in such a way that it makes much of him. We look forward to laboring in order to have something for anyone who has need. And this is so much more, friends, than obligatory, moralistic giving. This is a longing to give grace out of the overflow of the grace that I've received. I mean, do you see how absolutely revolutionary this is? 
You see how different it is than don't steal, labor, and contribute sometimes? The gospel changes all of that. And that now we labor to display the grace of God. And what this does is unbelievable because it takes the whole of your life, everything about you, including your job, and it turns it into a work of grace. Are you a janitor? It's a work of grace. Are you a teacher? Is it a, it's a work of grace. Are you a student? It's a work of grace. Are you a mother? It's a work of grace. It doesn't matter at that point what you do. It doesn't matter how much you earn. It doesn't matter how long you punch the clock and when you're off it. Your whole life, everything that you do, is now a means of being an agent of grace. As John Piper said, no more do we steal in the service of illegal greed and no more do we labor in the service of legal greed. Now everything is done in the service of grace, not greed. We don't steal to have and nor do we work to have. We work in order to give because we are laborers, we are agents, we are ambassadors of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And as we truly behold the grace of God towards us through faith in Christ, not only does it lead us to contentment with what we have, but it leads us to discontentment about what others do not have. We're compelled to move away from ourselves and seeing the world in light of Christ. And we long to be a part of it. As the ever-present, powerful grace of God flows into my heart, not only am I satisfied in Him, but the grace of God overflows through me to the needs of others. My heart is so changed by the gift of God's grace that I now long to give grace to others. And it doesn't matter whether that comes with dollar signs or not. I just want to give grace in whatever way I can. I spend myself. I sacrifice for others. I seek to meet people's needs. And so I want to be productive, not for myself, but to use my time and my energy and my resources to display the grace of God that has saved me and has created me after his likeness and true righteousness and holiness. I long at that point to put on my new self, which is created after God, to display the glory of Christ because I have been transformed and am being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. I am becoming more and more and more and more and more like him. And that means that I extend grace. I reflect the glory of Christ. Friends, do you see how completely different this is than don't steal, work, and contribute? Do you see why we can't reduce this down into moralistic capitalism. Your vocation, 
your labor, your belongings, your very life is not about you having. It's not about you taking. It's about what you have received in Christ so that your vocation and your labor and your belongings and your very life might be a display of the gift of grace that you have received. Because I received such grace, I long to give grace. Since Christ has worked to sacrifice for me, I now want to labor to sacrifice for others. Christ gave all. Therefore, I live to give. And so if we were to follow you around for a day or for a week, if people were to see your life and study why you work, would they see displays of the grace of God? Would they see you laboring joyfully because your soul is satisfied in God and not in your job? Would they see you labor as a reflection of the work of Christ or as someone who's just seeking to live for himself? Would they see in you a taker or a giver? The grace of God has freed us from the lust to acquire and to appropriate for ourselves. Let's display that with our labor. Christ gave himself to transform takers into givers. Don't live to get. Live to give. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that... um, that we would see Christ, that we would behold the glory and the wonder and the amazing grace that you've shown us in him, that we would not see your grace as light or momentary or meaningless, as something that happened in our past and is not ever present in our future, transforming us, changing us to become like Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be discontent And see the futility of living lives that only seek to take and to consume and to have. When you have already given us everything. Life and godliness. Lord, help us to reflect Christ. Help us to see the wonder and the beauty of the gospel. And to long to display that with our lives. Lord, let us never settle with moral commands and obligatory service. May we delight and take joy and comfort and hope in Christ so that it leads to practical daily change in our hearts and our attitudes and our thoughts and our actions. It's in his name we pray. Amen.